hello, hello, and welcome to the Podcast Spotlight, the offshoot series of the Economical Rise podcast designed for podcast fans and brought to you by podcast fans. I am your host, Danny, and today I am excited to bring a Podcast Spotlight first because we have two guests today in the form of Bill Portman and Nikolai Grunwig, co-hosts of the podcast We Don't Mean to Dwell, but anyway, Bill and Nikolai, welcome to the show. All right. Thank you, Danny. Hi, welcome. Yeah, oh, no, I, I'm the one that's on the show. Sorry. Hi. <laughs> Thank you for having us. We're both here. <laughs> Vaguely. <laughs> All right. And uh, yeah, so to get the audience uh, familiar with you guys, because you guys just started your podcast not too long ago, why don't you uh, start by telling us a little bit about yourselves? Um, so I'm Nikolai. Um, I'm Dutch. Uh, I've originally born in the Netherlands. Uh, I've been living here in Singapore for a little bit over a year now. Mm-hmm. I've spent the last 12 years traveling the world, uh, really? living in different countries. Uh, so I've lived in uh, the United States, uh, then spent a lot of time in France, uh, most recently in Paris, <laughs> before moving here. Um, and I'm what we call a training spouse, which means that my wife is mm-hmm. an expat here, and I quit my job, and I followed her to come live here in the beautiful Garden City. All right. And what did you used to do previously? Um, that is a very good question with a very long answer. <laughs> yeah. Jeez. Um, so I have a background in... How hard is it to say nothing? <laughs> nothing. Nothing. <laughs> this is what I've always done. Yeah. So originally I have a background in clinical neuropsychology and artificial intelligence. Holy you made, cow. You made half of those that words not, up. That is not nothing. Half and of those are made up. <laughs> most recently I was working in a digital strategy for a very big insurance firm, a very big um, European insurance firm. Mm, all right. And what about you, Bill? I'm not a neuropsychologist, <laughs> uh, but I am an American and from the U.S. Midwest. Mm-hmm. Uh, spent my lifetime living in different places in the American Midwest. Right. And then this is the first time I've been overseas. <laughs> uh, came to Singapore a little over four years ago. And uh, in a previous life, I've been a stay-at-home dad for a number of years now. Mm-hmm. Uh, in a previous life, I was a radio journalist. Ah. Uh, so that's a very quick version of me. Mm-hmm. Which explains this fancy setup right here that we have going on. This is fancy. <laughs> I don't know. For, for those people who are listening, we're actually recording in Bill's home studio. Thank where you, we Bill. Record ah, sure thing. <laughs> Our podcast. <laughs> well, I'll send you the bill. The, the rent <laughs> is really quite reasonable. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, compared compared to what I'm normally used to recording, this is um, quite incredible, actually. <laughs> well, we aim to impress. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so both of you guys are expats. Why don't you tell us a little bit about that experience? Uh, Bill, you've been here a bit longer. Um, yeah. Yeah, so I've been in Singapore a bit longer, but not as long of an expat uh, as Nikolai has been. Oh. Because um, he you know, lived in the U.S. previously and uh, moved to France from the Netherlands. But for me, this is my only expat experience, and uh, it's it's been wonderful. Um, we really enjoy Singapore as a family, uh, especially as winter comes to the north. Right. We really enjoy this time of year. And... Um, Singapore is just a, a, a wonderful place to be, and obviously, from our perspective, such a different world right. compared to what we grew up in and lived in for our entire lives, yeah. uh, that it's just a delight to uh, see and hear and experience so many different things. Right. So which uh, part of the Midwest did you come from exactly? 
So I was born in Michigan, raised in Ohio, lived a big chunk of my adult life in Illinois mm. and Michigan. Mm. So these are all the Trump country right. uh, places. <laughs> I'll be the first to say it because I knew someone was going to say it. So it might as well be me. Yeah. Uh, yeah. So I'm from that part of the U.S., that part of the Midwest. Yeah, because I, I actually did my um, university studies in Wisconsin, in Madison, Wisconsin. Oh, yes, absolutely. Okay. Yeah. So, so my sort of impression of the Midwest is this, you know, it's a nice, comfy, little cozy towns, you know, um, not too many people, definitely not the hustle and bustle of a Singapore or a New York City or even Chicago. So how was that, you know, uh, adjusting? I'm assuming, you know, you're, you're where you... Uh, came from in these different parts of the Midwest, these aren't like Singapore-style kind of con- uh, cities, were they? No, certainly not Singapore-style. I mean, this is the biggest, well, the biggest city we've lived in. So we did live outside of Chicago. So we've had some experience with living in Chicago. Right. Uh, we lived in Detroit for several years, uh, Detroit area, but these are both suburb experiences, suburban mm. experiences. So we didn't actually live in the city. Mm. Uh, it was still very much a car-based existence. You're driving from place to place. Um, and where we grew up was about only about 500,000 people, but just south of Cleveland, which is a little, little bigger city. So we didn't really grow up in like some small 2,300 population, small town. Right. We've known those people. <laughs> I've, I've had those people tell me that, uh, they didn't like to go to the next town over that had 23,000 people cause it was just too big. And, <laughs> Just a little intimidating. So right. they liked their roughly 2,000 size person. So we've had some experience with these cities, but we've also lived a lot in the smaller Midwestern towns as well. Um, but never, as I said, right here in the middle of it, where you take public transportation places, you walk places, there is constant buzz going on. It's it's fun. It's a lot of fun. Right. Yeah. That, um, I think, clearly sort of uh, highlights this idea of perspective. If you're coming from one of these people, uh, if you're someone coming from a town that is only 2,300 people and <laughs> 23,000 can seem daunting. But um, on the flip side, you know, we're talking about perspective, right? So that would be a very narrow perspective. But Nikolai here has an incredible perspective because he's been to so many different countries. What was that experience like? It was a great experience overall, really, really greatly impacted my life in an overwhelmingly positive way. But mm. as always, I wouldn't recommend it to anyone. <laughs> um, uh, great. Yeah. <laughs> Thanks for nothing. I, th- I think moving So out I'm of- moving out? Is yeah, that go. <laughs> <laughs> no, I think, I think moving out of your country for extended periods of time, and you, it's been four years for you, Bill, so yeah. you're probably going to experience the same thing when you, when you move back to the U.S. It's something that impacts you in unpredictable ways, in mm. the sense that... Y- you notice at some point that you're not really at home in the place where you're currently residing, and neither are you really at home in the place where you're where you're originally from. Hmm. Um, so that's a little bit rough sometimes. It's not always easy, but you get a lot of stuff in return. You learn new languages. Um, at least I did. Mm-hmm. Um, you learn about new cultures. You meet new people. You get to have wonderful new friends you never thought you would. So overall, it's a very enriching, a very very powerful experience. But I really do think it's not for anyone, for just everyone. Yeah. yeah. I mean, you grew up in the Netherlands, correct? I grew up in the Netherlands. Um, I grew up in, um, um, in my very early years on a farm. Mm. And we talk about, you know, the, the, the city size and, and, and population size and in a very, very, very small village. Right. And uh, then I, as I grew older, my parents moved to, uh, moved to the city. 
And then afterwards, I've been, you know, I, I've, I've moved to big cities almost exclusively with a, a little stint in between there in, uh, at Princeton, New Jersey, which was my most um, s suburban experience, I think. And really, that's where you really touch that American lifestyle, taking oh, your car. Yeah, that was also your AI time, right? That was also my, my AI time, yeah. And, and I, I have to say that, that New Jersey for me was just horrible. <laughs> oh, I hated it. <laughs> See, I hated it. I can tell you as a Midwesterner, you coastal people. Every time I got <laughs> to New York suck. City, I was, it was like a fresh of a breath of fresh smog. It was <laughs> crazy. Yeah, what, what, what was it like in uh, in New Jersey? New Jersey is very rural. Mm. Uh, so it's basically it's a giant interstate running through the, mm. running through the <laughs> it's, it's, it's a giant highway running through the state. Right. Uh, it's very. Um, Clean cut. Uh, it's mostly malls. Uh, I guess that's true for most of rural U.S. I guess. Yeah. Uh, not a whole lot of things to do. Uh, a couple of cute towns. A couple of wait. So you move to a a place that's rather clean cut and has lots of malls. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> huh. I, I guess I secretly long for those days. <laughs> <laughs> Yes, it called you home. <laughs> oh, it's very, it's very rural. There's a lot of, you know, a lot of nature. It's very green in uh, in, in New Jersey, and I really loved the hustle and the bustle of New York City. That's that's what I really enjoyed. Mm. And so later, I had the opportunity to move closer to New York City and spend more time there, and I enjoyed that a lot more. Yeah. All right. So then, um, talking about your podcast now, the podcast you guys do, we don't mean to dwell, but so. How did you guys first meet and come up with this idea of starting a podcast? Well, do we, we talk first... about the secret group? I'm not sure where we're <laughs> and get deported. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> now the uh, so Nikolai mentioned he's a trailing spouse, and I'm a trailing spouse as well. So mm. we followed my wife's job here, and uh, yes, we have this group of uh, fellow travelers who are all. Male trailing spouses. Trailing husbands. Yeah. And we get together <laughs> for lunch and happy hours from time to time. Uh, so I beg your pardon, Bill? <laughs> happy hours? Uh, strategy sessions. Excuse strategy me. Sessions. Honey, it's a strategy session. <laughs> God. Uh, this is where we plan out everything. <laughs> exactly. Yeah. <laughs> Close okay. call. D don't let her listen to this episode. <laughs> so that's how we met. It was through uh, that. I joined the group early on. Nikolai, I don't know how you found it. I found it through my cultural integration coach, I think. Ah, okay. What is a me. cultural integration coach? Oh, well, when you first come here to Singapore as an expat, you, depending on the company, you often get a package with some coaching on oh. local culture and local you know, customs and stuff like that. And we had a um, woman come to our, to our place for a whole afternoon, um, you know, lightening us on local Singaporean culture and on the do's and do nots and all that kind of stuff, oh, which wow. basically can be resumed to don't talk as loud as you usually do. <laughs> <laughs> well, Try to keep we've it down. screwed that up. <laughs> for sure. <laughs> you had one, one thing that you had to get right. I forgot. It was yeah. a long list. <laughs> I was shouting over top of her, and I, I didn't hear it clearly. What? <laughs> clearly, the coach didn't do, do a good job. Exactly. <laughs> That's right. No. And we got a similar sort of thing, but back in the U.S. Mm. So she gave us tips and tricks and things like that ah, okay. uh, back in the U.S. I didn't get it here in Singapore. Yeah. Okay. Oh, but we were in the middle of a story. Oh, so well, we yeah. met. <laughs> so, oh, <yes>. we, <laughs> so we met through this group, and then I've tried to reconstruct this. We just, 
I don't know, one day it was like, hey, you like podcasts? Yeah, I like podcasts. <laughs> I used to be in radio. We should do one. Yeah, exactly. Because I had always wanted to do one. A more serious one, right? <laughs> <Yeah>. Right. <laughs> which I also another have screw up, which I also have on the side, which which, which we'll get about. to later. <laughs> um, yeah, and we got to talking and said, "Well, we should just do it. We should just sit down and record something." And we because did. And we were concerned, you know, what's it going to be about? What are we going to do if we wait around and figure oh, that out? God. I'm never going to figure that out. It's never going <laughs> to happen. So we opened up the mics and yeah. pressed record. Invited some friends and yeah, the rest is history. Yeah. Because <laughs> yeah. it'll end quickly. Right? <laughs> oh, for sure. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you guys have about 11 or 12 episodes. Isn't it? Yeah, or is it 14, 14? 14. 14, sir. Yeah. Yes. And like three more in the can. So yeah. we're set through the end of the year, I think. Yeah, yeah, we have a pretty tight recording schedule. So we record <laughs> once a week. We try yeah, we to do. have right. guests on that are interesting and fun to talk to. And yeah. So so, is so far the, so good. So is the uh, the way you get or, or sort of decide on what you're gonna do your episode on? Is that based on what kind of guests you're gonna bring on, or do you sort of have a topic in mind before you bring on a guest? Uh, well, the, if it's a if there's a guest, they drive the topic mm. for sure because you want to bring them on for a reason, right? Um, but sometimes it's just the two of us, mm-hmm. and it's kind of whatever is on our mind that mm-hmm. week. Uh, not even so often with a theme. Uh, but we've gotten more guests lately, so that focuses it much more. Um, we did. We talked about Stanley. Stanley died, and we yeah. were both comic book fans, yeah. so we talked about that. That was like a theme-driven episode exactly. with just the two of yeah. us. Yeah, yeah. And usually, we try to get. We've had cases where we wanted to talk about a certain theme, and we got a guest on because of that theme. Mm. But most of the cases, we invite people because we think they're interesting. Mm. Because we think we could have a fun conversation with them. Right. Um, and then we just see whatever they want to talk about, we can talk about. And, you know, yeah. Yeah. We're pretty I, was, open. Uh, I was just listening to your latest episode today where you invited the uh, the host of uh, Southeast Asian History podcast. Yes. yes. Charles Kimball. Charles yeah. Kimball, yeah. So that's a podcast <laughs> that uh, I've listened to principally. And he just kind of out of the blue started a podcast on Southeast Asian history. Yeah. And uh, that seemed like, something worth knowing when you live in Southeast Asia. <laughs> so I plowed through those and uh, we just kind of thought, well, what the heck, we'll have him on. So uh, yeah. it was kind of a... Yeah, that was a pretty illuminating episode. But um, I think what... And I also listened to a bunch of uh, your other episodes and one of the more striking ones was the one you did on Singapore food. Oh. <laughs> because... Um, Awful food. <laughs> I came away thinking that that was the most misleading title. <laughs> of a podcast because uh bill would share a very um sort of tragic story uh, oh. regarding singapore food what yeah, did i say it was the other food episode the, the other, other food, food episode yeah. the one where you talk about your kids and how they are uh have different allergies and stuff and oh yeah. food allergies yeah. yes 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 we did talk about that yeah so i have a younger son who uh has many life-threatening food allergies and uh so he never eats out. Uh, it's too risky. So we don't take him out to eat. Well, we, we go out to eat as a family, but we have a system for covering that. And we pack food for him. But uh, he can't eat out. So there's this whole thing with Singapore that food culture, food culture, yeah. food culture. Many different cultures have come here. All the foods have blended. You can basically get anything from all across Asia and the West. 
and he can't enjoy it. So for us as a family, we don't engage much with food culture. We don't engage with foodie or any of these kinds of things uh, because we can only do it at home. Mm. So going out to the to the hawker centers, which are a big deal, of course, and uh, going out to the fancy restaurants around here, we just don't connect with any of that. Right. Yeah. So, so this is this is something that I was wondering after I listened to an episode. Right? Was that since you guys, um, your family, don't get to experience that much of Singapore's food culture, do you compensate by sort of looking out more or for other parts of Singaporean culture? Or do the other parts become more accentuated to you? Kind of like how you have a disability in one organ and then, you know. Yeah, mostly I just drink. <laughs> I mean, that doesn't help the kids, but... You know, <laughs> why is Daddy lying in the hallway again? <laughs> oh, he's sleeping in my bed again. <laughs> tired of stepping over him, and he smells. <laughs> no, I th- yes, actually, I think we uh, make a much bigger deal of going hiking. Mm. So we try to hit every single park that we can, and uh, hit every green space that we can. Uh, so we do much more of those kinds of things right. uh, and just don't do food at all. Oh. Yeah, And of course, most people would try to avoid the outdoors, right? Because right. it's humid, uncomfortable, on these things. But that's what we prefer to do is to walk places, hike places, do things like that. Yeah, awesome. All right. So then um, last question before we move on to talking about the podcast, right? So both of you guys are trailing um, husbands, trailing spouses, I recently just got married this past July. Oh, congratulations. Right. And um, my situation is a little bit interesting in the sense that uh, my wife is currently doing her PhD back in Madison. And... (laughs) Wow, that's tough. Yeah. Distances. Yeah. So we're doing the... That's a long distance. We're doing the long distance thing. And I've been thinking about going back to America to sort of do something back there. So if I do ever become a trailing spouse, what advice would you have? Well, there was the drinking Uh-oh. thing. <laughs> <laughs> also, is, she, is she rich? Yes. Because <laughs> that <Step> really helps. <laughs> <laughs> Marry well. Yes. Yes. Marry above your station. <laughs> so there's any... Ever any kids just give up immediately? Yes. <laughs> like, actually, that's good general parenting advice. Just give up. <laughs> uh, uh, any useful advice here? Let's yeah. think. Well, uh, you know, it, I think it depends on knowing yourself. Mm-hmm. Uh, so if you're the kind of person that would view it as unacceptably... Uh, not male or not masculine to be in the trailing position for the most part. Uh, You better know that about yourself now, right? Before you make a decision like that. Right. Um, Because especially if you go to the U.S., I actually don't know how work visas work there, so you might be kind of stuck. Like this is something we experience here in Singapore. It's not necessarily so easy to work. Mm. So if your identity is tied up uh, with paid professional regular employment, that might not be available to you. And it might have to be more volunteer opportunities or uh, if you have kids, you simply take care of the kids, mm. um, things like that. So it's more kind of know yourself first before you take that leap. Mm. That's what I would say. Did that sound intelligent? 
That sounded very, very intelligent. Nice. <laughs> I would add to that that, yeah, know yourself and be ready to explore sides of yourself that you didn't know before. <laughs> like, like be open to the idea of, of being something else than you thought you were mm. and facing uh, all kinds of interesting criticism and <laughs> judgment by yeah. from your kids. Basically, the rest of the world, which apparently yeah, still right. largely feels that um, this is not something a man should do. Yeah. So did you guys have to overcome that or how long did it take for you to get comfortable with that idea? Yeah. Well, so I've been doing the stay-at-home dad thing for about 12 years now. Mm. And I was doing it in a very small town of 15,000 people in central Illinois. Mm. So uh, <laughs> it was sink or swim. <laughs> I either uh, I had to get over that and move on and do different things or not. So for me, it was volunteering activities and staying up on politics and economics and things like that because I'm still kind of a news guy. Right. Um, but uh, I would agree with what Nikolai said that you have to be prepared to change your self-identity and who you are yeah. and what you do. I mean, the outside stuff depends who you're getting it from, right? I mean, if you're getting it right. from like your father-in-law, mm. that yeah. sucks real bad. <laughs> yeah. Right? right. But if it's strangers or whatever, you just go, you know what? Yeah. Screw you. Yeah. yeah. Even my father-in-law. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, so with that, let's uh, move on to the first podcast. And I think let's go with... Uh, so since we have two guests today, we're going to go with one recommendation from Bill and then one from Nikolai. We're going to go with Bill's one first. And uh, Bill's recommendation is the one from the Seneca podcast. This is a podcast out of the SubChina network. It is known for different podcasts such as Tech Buzz China, China Econ Talk, New Voices, or Ta for Ta. And the episode that he has recommended is called Myth-Busting China's Social Credit System. So, Bill, what can you tell us about this podcast and this specific episode? Yeah, well, so for me, I've said a couple of times I'm a news and information guy and history buff and all this kind of thing. Mm. And so for me, landing here in Asia, only steeped pretty much in you know American and North American history, right. because the rest of the world doesn't matter. For me, when I come over here, it's like, oh, there is a rest of the world. So I started looking around for resources that would teach me something, right, about mm. this new neighborhood, this new home uh, that we had. And eventually I did. I landed on uh, the Sup China, which is actually a newsletter about China, mm -hmm. really useful for me. I That gets me up to speed on China really quick on a daily basis. And then Seneca is the extension podcast, or one is the extension of the other, I don't know. And uh, Seneca, with its deep dive focus on uh, China, is very useful, obviously, because mm -hmm. the whole world is remaking itself around what China does yeah. now. And I think one of the key differences with Seneca is this is not English speakers talking about China. These are, okay, so these are academics. So, you know, you could argue, oh, this is dry or whatever. But mm -hmm. these academics are all Chinese speakers, fluent, right? Mm. They all study... Uh, they're all using the social media of China. They're all uh, reading the original Chinese texts of everything that comes out. Right. So for me, this is a podcast that is 
much better connected to what Chinese language, actual Chinese people, Chinese thought, Chinese politics Mm -hmm. is actually doing instead of something maybe coming out of the West where it's talking about the English language versions or what their governments think about it. Um, So in this case, with this particular episode, it was about China's social credit system. Uh, and it, when you listen to it, you can hear the the lead host talk about you know everything you hear in the West. This is totalitarian dystopia. Yeah. And then they get these experts who are on uh, Weibo. 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 Oh, I'm going to get the pronunciation. Oh, oh God. <laughs> it's Lemo. A, it's pronounced Weibo. Weibo. Yeah. Yes. B O Bo. Yeah. Weibo. Yeah. So they're on Weibo, which is the Chinese Twitter. Chinese Twitter. Yeah. Thank you. Uh, I can't read it, so I don't <laughs> use it much. <laughs> I did study a little Chinese. You can see the books. The books are. <laughs> you, you think so? Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> there you go. I understood that. Good. <laughs> and that's it. That's all you get. Yeah. But I, I, I enjoy that these experts actually speak the language and are able to actually uh, interpret things for you coming at it directly from what people are experiencing yeah. in China. Yeah. Yeah. And can I just say that uh, of the gate, I. I actually love the sub-China network. So I was super glad that you, you brought this up and you wanted to recommend it, but primarily because of another show, uh, The New Voices. And uh, that one is actually more focusing on Chinese female perspectives. One, the, the thing that drew me into that show was that the title was just so creative because The New is sort of, um, it's sort of phonetically, when you switch it to English, it sounds like New Voices when you spell it the N-U, but then in Chinese, it's, it's New Voices, which which tr- literally translates to female, female voices. Ah, yeah. okay. Oh, very, very clever. Oh, that's cool. Yeah. yeah, yeah. So then... But so it's then, N-U Voices. N-U, N-U Voices, exactly. Okay. With a little yeah. f- weird figure on top, right? Yeah, yeah, exactly. Tone mark or... Yeah, the tone mark. Yeah. I, don't yeah. know, I don't know what it's called technically, but yeah. Yeah. That uh, Nikolai is uh, understanding what I'm talking about. Yeah. And um, yeah, so in one of the earlier episodes, they made the gripe that the reason why we wanted to start this podcast is because we're sick of, you know, listening to these Westerners constantly talking about China and we uh-huh. want to we wanna speak up for ourselves. Yeah. And then this, I discovered the sub-China network through, through New Voices. And it's just incredible. The kind of uh, cultural, you know, technical and even economical business insight you get is, sort of, is certainly different from what you can get on maybe a Bloomberg or a, mm. uh, even a, a South China Morning Post kind of uh, article. So yeah, thank you for, for recommending that. But then um, speaking now into the topic of a social credit system, right? So, you know, the, uh, the guest sort of Try to bring this uh, perspective from the from the from the China side, right? Trying right. to counter this uh, prevailing Western uh, narrative of a totalitarian totalitarian state being brought on by this social credit system. So, what was your take on this? And Nikolai, please feel free to chip in whenever you can. Yeah, you I'm gonna let the American do. <laughs> <talk first. laughs> yeah. In that's the way it should be. <laughs> um, yeah, actually, I did like that this provided that other perspective. Mm. And um, to kind of summarize what they what the other perspective seemed to be is um, China right now, PRC, People's Republic of China, is is a low trust country, is what they say. Mm. So there has been so much change uh, and some key changes in society that uh, things feel very rough around the edges. People don't know what to think. I mean. Some of that stuff obviously has come out to the West. There's been food scares and cheating and corruption and things like that. Right. And I've even talked to 
PRC Chinese who feel that their society has coarsened and gotten meaner. Uh, so you have a low-trust society that's gone through enormous convolutions over the last few decades mm -hmm. that needed some way to start to stitch people back together. So this social credit system allows uh, uh, some method for people to punish the people who are bad and reward the people who are good. Hmm. And so in daily life, people love it when the social credit system busts the jerk that's smoking on the train or something like that, right. but allows them to get ahead in the world and like get a free rental of a, a, a rental bike, hmm. right? So they actually love it. Now, are they allowed to say that they don't love it? There's the question. <laughs> but at least according to these experts in this particular episode, there are positives that Chinese see. Mm -hmm. And that is not something you're going to get from any of the mainstream commentary anywhere well, in I, the West. I know? think from a Western perspective, it's very difficult to identify with that more optimistic interpretation since, you know, the, the, the general Western narrative is that we value freedom above everything else. So therefore, any... Uh, attempt to uh, to uh, somehow encroach that freedom will be seen in a very negative light. Mm. Um, and I wonder up to what point the trust issue wouldn't solve itself automatically through the free market. Mm. In, but in what way? I mean, they've kind of had a Wild West free market right now. Well, enormous growth is always <clears throat> enormously complicated, right? Growth destroys things. Growth is very, very difficult to manage. So it makes sense to me that right now it's a sort of a, a mess or rough around the edges, as you said. Right. One would expect sort of, one would expect it to settle down, right? As, 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 like, hmm. look at America's history, right? The beginning of, of, of America was, was quite a wild ride, right? And especially through the 19th century with all the technological and development and yeah, social disruption, yeah, 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 right? Yeah yeah, yeah. yeah, yeah. So I'm wondering up to what point you need this system. Well, so there's that, and then there's the other side, which they do talk about in the episode a little right. bit, which is, at least in the U.S., and that's the one I understand the best, we have a social credit system, it's just privatized. Right. Yeah. <laughs> exactly. So there are the credit rating agencies who are perfectly private entities that owe you nothing mm -hmm. because you're not their customer, right? And then now they've eventually been regulated by the government, but it didn't start that way. And then you have Facebook, of course, and mm -hmm. all of the other social media outlets that people have poured all of their personal data into. Mm. That's all privatized, potentially social credit system. Right? Although Facebook only affects, what does it really affect? What ad you see, right? It doesn't right. affect whether or not you can book a train ticket. Correct. Like, That's right. have the same kind of impact. Though. But there's nothing inherent in the U.S. system to prevent those kinds of linkages from being made. That's the scary thing. That's, yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. And, and all, potentially, in, potentially. all in the private sector, right? Yeah. I guess what I'm... Well, there's leg legislation here's, in place, right, in terms of data sharing and, and yeah, data use. Some, some. That's, uh, that's, yeah? that's actually an I mean, there is here, I don't know, less so in the U.S. I think so. I don't know. I can make crap up. I'm pretty up. sure. Let me just make <laughs> crap up. <laughs> yeah. And uh, speaking out of ignorance is the best. <laughs> I love it. <laughs> yeah, I was I was going to say that um yeah, you 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 make a nice comparison here between the private sort of credit system and the and the uh social credit system that China has. I was going to say that it's sort of a apples versus oranges thing because 
The private system deals mainly in banking, but then with the onset of Facebook and Google collecting different different sets of data, you know, it's it's kind of scary to see where the private sector can take their sort of data collection and where it can go, and uh, you know how we can sort of you know lock out or or uh, you know lock out or freeze out different consumers. But in the case of China, I think it's it's pretty interesting, and perhaps you know. Um, some of the stories you hear coming out of the social credit system. I think uh, Planet Money did one episode on this. They interviewed this guy who failed to pay back a loan. Um, and he got his name plastered on billboards, mm. on buses. Uh, and yeah. yeah, basically his whole city knew about him and, you know, why why people shouldn't be lending money to him. Yeah. Yeah. So it's it's kind of weird. And, you know, you were talking about how trust why why hasn't trust built up in the free market right i i kind of want to make the comparison to singapore a bit because i i don't know if you share this view but i i have the view that singapore is actually a place with pretty high social trust at least if you look in the hawker centers if you place you know your tissue packets at the tables you know no one will go and bother that they just leave it alone you can i don't think you'll be able to do it in china i don't know about the states yeah <laughs> or depends elsewhere in the world yeah so and and yeah, that to some extent, uh, that I think was sort of state driven because there was a lot of um, social policies that that sort of uh, was was specifically target targeted at uh, mixing the races, and but yeah, I don't know how much um, that how much of that can come from just the free market alone uh, after you know how many years of uh, open market and stuff. So it's a pretty interesting sort of a dilemma we got. <laughs> well, <that's, laughs> Yeah, go ahead. I think that's a very interesting observation. And I think that's something that most people moving here from the West ask themselves at some point. Yes, right? for sure. If mm. you look at Asia in general, I mean, even in Southeast Asia, there, there's almost at no, at no point visiting any country have I felt unsafe. Mm. Yeah. yeah, actually, I'd agree with Asia. that. Yeah. I, I feel much safer here than even in a regular neighborhood in Paris, for example. There's definitely places in Paris where I felt much less safe than here in Bangkok. Even. Yeah. Yeah. Right? Which, which is crazy if you think about it, right? Um, and this is obviously related also to the way government deals with crime and, and, mm. and, and issues punishment. Mm-hmm. Uh, so I think uh, for most Westerners, those are questions that we ask ourselves at some point. Yeah, I would agree. It's a it's a challenge to our notions of what makes a stable, safe, bound together society, right? Exactly. Um, you know, which kind of brings me back to something that you were saying real early on in this conversation, which is um, when you go back, you're not quite of that place either. And we're likely going to go back in a couple of years. We have an older son. He's going to go to university. We have other reasons to go back as well. And um, I'm very curious how my perspective will have changed in ways that I can't even envision now, Mm. simply from having been exposed to different social systems and different approaches by societies to solving these common problems. Mm. I'll be curious to see. Anyway, laying Western notions on top of what's going on in China. Uh, would be a social credit system either privatized or a social credit system uh, handled in other ways. But is the government answerable to the people? And I would argue in China, of course, that it's not. So suppose something happens with this guy where he gets Mm -hmm. his name plastered everywhere and the people say, that shouldn't happen. That's not how it should get used. We're going to change things so that it doesn't get used that way. Well, good luck with that. 
Right. You, you have no voice yeah. to get in there and change the system because it has ulterior motives, right? The point is control. And I think right. this unilateral, centralized, absolute power is what scares most people from the West, especially people from Europe, where we've had some unfortunate experiences in our very recent history with <laughs> centralized unilateral power and yeah. people deciding that certain it, groups of people were untrustworthy. It was mm-hmm. bad, right? Pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> That's what I hear. Yeah. What I mean, I hear. Who knows? Who talks about that anymore? Exactly. <laughs> yeah. But, uh, you know, so so by definition, you know, by default, we would, um, yeah, we would not like that. Yeah. Right. Well, well actually, uh, Bill, when you were talking about that, right, I, I, sort, I was sort of reminded of this one story that they brought up within the episode. They were talking about this case whereby I think it was um, some kid's university entrance exam, right? And then uh, he got his scores, but then he was denied entry because because of something his dad did. Uh-huh. And then their city yeah. got up in arms, and they sort of managed to suspend that. Well, I'm not sure they suspended the program, but it created a huge con- uh, controversy on uh, Weipo and other areas. So. Okay, well, so th- you know, and that's interesting. I have heard of social media used in that way, right? Mm. That that. They do use it as a measure of what's working and what is tolerable to people or not. Right. So, you know, maybe that's a different mechanism for pushing back uh, yeah. against it. Um, yeah, I don't know. I don't know. Yeah. And uh, and speaking of social media, um, you know, we're, we're talking about credit systems and ways to sort of keep people's behavior in check, right? I just uh, was just reminded that in Singapore, I don't know if you guys know about this, we actually have this website called Stomp. Oh, yes. I... I <laughs> I open it up every day, just kind of <laughs> shift through. And part of the reason is is because I live not too far from Orchard Towers. Okay. So I always like to see what's going on in my neighborhood. <laughs> <laughs> so enlighten me, what's Stomp? So Stomp is this, base, is this website where people upload pictures or videos of what they deem to be unethical behavior or socially unacceptable behavior. So this would be things like um, sitting in the... Uh, the reserve seat on a train when you are clearly able-bodied and oh. so on. Yeah, so this is this has actually been a part of Singaporean culture for quite a while, and I would actually argue that it does play play quite a bit in sort of regulating people's behavior, and maybe it's it's sort of the a part of the free market solution that you were thinking of, Nikolai. I'm installing it right now just to check if I'm on <laughs> it. And I'm trying to put <laughs> for sure. I'm trying to find it. Where is it? There we go. Stomp. Wow. Yeah. I don't know that I'll be able to see. It's orange. Yeah, there we go. Right. And uh, first one is four. Oh, boy. Mortal <laughs> Engines, the ad. Uh, okay. Four-year-old boy sent flying for five meters after being hit by taxi in Toapayo. Did I pronounce that right? Toapayo? Toapayo. Toapayo. Yeah. That's your yeah. Big- <laughs> biggest concern here. <laughs> <laughs> I'm not heartless. <laughs> Damn, there went my demerits. My social credit just went into the toilet. Five meters, not very far. <laughs> Why did he go for six? Yeah. Underachiever, not very Kiasu. <laughs> oh, wow, there's some good stuff on yeah, it. Yeah, <laughs> right? <laughs> That's yeah, pretty good. But, but the- well, and there's also a culture, though, in Singapore of reporting people. Yeah. So, like, I routinely read about stuff where uh, so-and-so, Madam so-and-so, put in a report for something. Exactly. And I'm like, really? People (laughs) called the cops about that? My God, we don't do that. (laughs) And 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 they call the cops. (laughs) It's not like they go to their neighbors and say, hey, cut that out. Yeah. They call the cops. Again, something we're culturally not very comfortable with back here. Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. 
It's uh, th- th- that's that's the thing I, w- I wanted to bring the, up. It's well. Yes. <laughs> yes. You have a fine, fine history of the police being constrained in Europe. <laughs> <laughs> but we've got our problems in uh, the U.S. too. Yeah, so, yeah, I'll yeah. admit to it. Yeah, but uh, th- that was the thing I was going to bring up as well because on the flip side of Stomp, right, an and app like like Stomp is, I, I kind of have the sense that it turns people into busybodies, or it gets people to sort of avoid having to confront one another. And it's it's a pretty sort of nuanced uh, cultural trade-off, I think. Yeah. So I think that's about it for the first podcast. Uh, pretty interesting stuff. And now let's move on to the second one, which is uh, Nikolai's recommendation. And Nikolai has recommended here the Mindscape podcast, which is hosted by Sean Carroll. And the episode is episode 15, David People on Thought, Language, and How to Understand the Brain. Nikolai, please share what this episode is about. So I was I was hesitating between this podcast and a very... <laughs> inappropriate and one filled with swears <laughs> one filled with uh, references to well anyway um no no go on we'll no, put no, it on no, stomp no, so, <laughs> sean carroll is a is a theoretical astrophysicist who wrote a couple of books um that you might have heard about one called the big picture and the other called called the um, god particle i think or the particle at the end of the universe mm. about the higgs boson um so i've always had an interest in in physics. I, I spent some time at CERN in Geneva, so at mm. the particle accelerator. I did a four month uh, internship there during uh, my uh, my AI studies. Um, oh yeah, just just CERN. Yeah, just CERN. Just, just yeah. name dropping there. Name dropping. There. <laughs> go on. Anyone can just go there. It's yeah, very easy for sure. <laughs> Disneyland. Um, it which is a great place to be. It's a very open. It's it's the most open place of free thought and, and, and academic pursuit that exists in the world, I think. Mm. Scientists there can basically do whatever they want mm-hmm. and research whatever they want. So I've, I've had the good fortune to attend quite a, quite a number of lectures there, uh, which I've uh, thoroughly forgotten, uh, <laughs> which I only partially <laughs> understood, but which seemed very interesting. <laughs> did, <laughs> did you speak the language? Uh, English, yes. It, it was uh, in English. Yeah, all, all the math. No, no not necessarily. Was, I, I don't it, it, was really, uh, it was really quite yeah, complicated. Yeah. Um, what's interesting is that Sean Carroll, so he started this podcast in July, I think, not so very long ago. Mm-hmm. And what he does, he just hosts conversations with what he calls the world's most interesting thinkers. Mm-hmm. Um, and he basically just invites people and he sits down with them. So these can be either other physicists or he's at one episode where he had an economist on. Uh, so there's always something really interesting going on in these episodes. Some, always something interesting to learn. And I like the interesting with uh, the episode with uh, David Popel, mm. who is a um, professor of psychology and neuroscience at uh, NYU and has a PhD in cognitive science from MIT because it resonated uh, with some of my own personal interests. Mm. Uh, so as I mentioned, I have a background in clinical neuroscience and I got into artificial intelligence because I was very interested in the earliest efforts of uh, computational modeling of the brain. Right. 
uh, that spun off into the earliest efforts of um, what we now call neural networks, mm -hmm. uh, which have, you know, in the last couple of years, really taken off because of in, in increased computational power. Mm. Um, and the reason I found this episode so interesting is because it highlights something that very few people know, which is that we actually still have absolutely no idea about how the brain works. <laughs> <laughs> what yeah. con what consciousness is, uh, how we process language, um, and we're basically stuck in uh, yeah in medieval notions of <laughs> you know, it's all it's all very 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 er early and days. We, we prove that with our podcast every single episode. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly, <laughs> exactly. So you know, it's just always it's always that's always mind blowing to me. You know, mm. and, um, I think with. Yeah. Pupil's work, what's very interesting about him is that he looks, for example, at the processing of uh, language in the brain. Right. So one of the things that he mentions in this episode is that, um, you know, people always think that we know a lot about what's going on in the brain because we have functional MRI and we can look sort of at brain activity while we're doing tasks. And he mentions how it's nice that we can see something about the activity correlate of the brain while we're doing certain tasks, but at the temporal resolution of all of these imaging techniques is very, very low and that we have nowhere near the required temporal resolution to actually interpret it in any meaningful way. So for example, I think, I, I, I might get, be getting these numbers wrong, but I think we can process, like we have a, a, a temporal resolution of one image a second or mm. something. Uh, for example, when it comes to um, natural language processing, we process uh, spoken speech something like four between four and six syllables a second. So we're orders of magnitude removed from having the right temporal resolution in these imaging techniques to do anything meaningful. Mm. Um, when you look at how we process those four to six syllables a second, is we don't really know. Right? We don't really know how our brain processes these, how they translate it into uh, ideas. We don't know where ideas are stored. We don't even know what's the right representation level to think about ideas. Mm. So we used to think that ideas were stored somewhere in blobs and regions of our brain. Then we sort of thought, well, you know, it's probably neurons. And then, well, you know, maybe it's uh, a bunch of neurons. I would just call it a network. and Or maybe it's just the connections between neurons. But none of that really got us anywhere in a very fundamental way. It's just we give it a different name, but we still don't know how things are stored in the brain or retrieved in the brain or represented in the brain. We don't know anything. Um, and so that, yeah, it's just, that's still today very fascinating to me. Yeah, that's that's incredible. So, so all the work that's been done on neuroscience and trying to understand the human brain, so that's just been throwing out different theories and then seeing which one and then testing them out? Is that what's been going on? or? Well, so there's a lot of... Um, there are different angles when you look at neuroscience. So, mm. for example, there's the psychiatric angle. So, people have illnesses, and how do you treat them, mm. right? So, uh, then you typically look at uh, pharmaceuticals, uh, you look at neurotransmitters, you think, okay, so maybe people are depressed, like a certain kind of neurotransmitter. Maybe I have to give them this neurotransmitter or, or, or give them a medication that either... Uh, either increases the production or inhibits the reuptake of this neurotransmitter, mm. maybe they will feel better. 
And so there's a lot of um, structural research there, pharmaceutical research, but it doesn't really get us any closer to answering questions about how the brain works. It's mm. just sort of correlational stuff. It's medicine. You know, it's, it doesn't answer, answer any of the fundamental questions about mm. what is the mind? All right. Uh, how does the mind emerge from the brain? Uh, um, yeah, so, so then in this episode, right, um, David People here, he... He brings up his sort of take on how he thinks uh, the human brain processes language and thought. So I'm not the <laughs> neuroscientist here. Could you kind of share shed, light, shed a bit of light on how he thinks the, the brain works here? <laughs> oh, <laughs> as if I would have remembered. Yeah. <laughs> no, I, th- I, 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 and actually I do that in Mandarin. Right? <laughs> exactly. Here, here goes. Here goes. I can do it in French. Ah. Um, so his his own theory, as far as I understand it, is based on the dual stream processing theory when it comes to sound, and has a lot to do lot to do with uh, how the brain translates from one coordinate space to another coordinate space. Mm. Um, for example, if you're trying to do something with your hands while listening to an instruction on how to do that with your hands, then your brain has to go from a bunch of syllables that you receive through your ear that go, you know, as an electrical signal going somewhere into your brain to a meaningful representation in first off uh, a coordinate space that's, that's related to meaning, but ultimately one that is going to be related to the position of your eyes because you're looking at the thing that you want to do mm. in relation to the position of your body, your trunk, your arm, the 3D coordinate system of the space surrounding you. And it also has to take into account all of these motor inputs and all of these notions of movement in 3D space. And how am I going to make sure that I don't crush my cup when I grab for it? Mm. Right? That's a... By the way, when you first start programming robots, often you do like a, a, a chessboard robot that picks up one piece and puts it somewhere else. And it's one of the um, earliest mistakes that you make is that it just crushes the, oh. <laughs> the piece through the, through the table because you get the Z coordinate wrong. Right. right. Because in ah. robotics, basically, if you have a if you have a robotic arm with certain degrees of freedom, certain degrees of movement, you also have to translate things from one space to another, from a space where there's only one piece of arm to the next arm that moves in a certain way, to the hand that moves in a certain way, to the position of the piece on the chessboard that's in another coordinate system. Um, and we don't have, again, we don't have any of the answers to any of these things, other than that we know that the brain does it very, very quickly and very efficiently. And that most likely it's... Um, a context-driven prediction uh, process that's going on where the brain is actively filling in the blanks. Um, would, would it be right to say it's sort of reactionary, mostly reactionary? In what sense? In the sense that it's taking in all these inputs and then trying to respond or form its own uh, outputs, I guess. So I think it takes the inputs, it's super, I mean, it, it, it uses its own model of the world, its expectations of the world. Mm. Uh, it combines it with the input in order to produce something meaningful. Mm, right. um, so it's not completely data-driven. It's, 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 um, it's data-generated and controlled by whatever model uh, we have. Mm. Whatever. Yeah, that's... Uh, when I was listening to that, that, that actually struck me because uh, you mentioned that you previously had experience with AI. And yeah. I thought that was sort of parallel to how 
we are trying to advance AI in the sense that you know you know AI or big data what what they do is they take in all these all these uh, tons of data and then they reform and then it sort of uh, forms how they're going to act act out is that sort of uh, your impression as well or am i wrong here well i think what's interesting with the with the latest wave mm. of AI in the last couple of years with with neural networks mm. um, yeah there are some resemblances uh, in the sense that you could think about some of the issues that you have with artificial neural networks um, and make comparisons to the issues that you have interpreting uh, how the brain works. Mm. For example, in, 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 in complex artificial neural networks, um, you don't necessarily know why certain decisions are made the way that, are, that they are made by the network. Mm. Um, there is not, uh, unlike in, in the previous generation of AI models, where everything was very much based on statistical learning combined with feature representation. So typically you would look at an image, for example, if you wanted to do object recognition in an image, you would say, okay, so I'm trying to identify cats, right? right? Cats, they look a certain way. Maybe if I look at the eyes and I can find a mathematical representation that looks something, in, you know, that, that, that represents the eyes or that represents a tail shape or something, and I put all of these things together in a statistical model, then I can learn to predict whether or not something is a cat. Mm. Right? Whereas today's models, you take all the, all the pixel data from an image of a cat and you just feed it to the neural network that uh, does its weight propagations and all of his math stuff and then out comes something that says this is a cat and this is not a cat. And in order to know exactly why something is a cat and why something is considered to be not a cat, yeah, you can only look back into the activation, uh, uh, the activation in, in all the layers that make up the network and go, mm. okay, so here it's grouping together uh, things that look this way. Here it's looking at edges or outlines. Uh, here it's making a distinction between something that looks like this and something that looks like that. But you have no clear way to say, okay, it's it's looking precisely at this. Mm. And one can imagine that as these models grow bigger and more complex, that the interpretation problem becomes more difficult. And then, of course, the question is, and the question that I find interesting and that people worry about for reasons that are unclear to me, is that is the mind something that emerges automatically from complexity or not, right? Is, 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 is the mind that we experience, the subjective mind and mm -hmm. consciousness that we experience in our brain, is it something that is a special feature of our brain because it has uh, uh, some sort of evolutionary advantage, mm. right? Because it... That way we, we live longer, we, we have more offspring. Or is it something that emerges with complexity? Um, if at some point a computer says, hi, I'm Or, I, I or is it an after effect that or has no meaning? Or is it an no after meaning? effect that has no meaning? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, if, sometime, if at some point in time a computer tells us, hi, I'm conscious, uh, should we worry or should we just take it seriously or should we go, eh, just, you know. Shoot it. <laughs> Shoot it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> So yeah, I just find these these, these topics the, the, there's they've always been fascinating to me, and yeah, I think they always well. And that yeah. was a particularly good episode of that podcast. Uh, it was quite good, you yeah. know. And and they actually made reference to this that they were on a podcast talking about how audio systems work in our <laughs> brain, right? Right. And, and yeah. I, I thought that was just a lot of fun. And it is absolutely true that uh, you you hear pressure waves, because all sound is is pressure waves, mm -hmm. and yet this whole cascade of 
completely abstract thoughts that then become actionable pop up in your brain. And it's just an extraordinary process when you stop to think about it. And then the idea of replicating it, as you've been talking about with AI, is just unbelievably intimidating uh, to, to try to match it. But it's beginning to take hold, I guess. It's beginning to work. That was, uh, that was actually my concern because, um, you know, you're, you're mentioning that we barely have a firm understanding on how the mind works. But here we are trying to build these AIs to sort of replicate human consciousness so, well, yeah. well, I, I would, I would, yeah. That's not the reason why we do AI, though. Oh, okay. <laughs> <laughs> why do we? <laughs> just, I mean, AI is just, just because. Let's make something. Just because you know you need because we can because there are difficult problems ah. that need solving, um, and very often once a problem is solved, it's no longer considered AI. Don't know if you've ever noticed this, but then it just becomes software. So, for example, yeah, need an um, example. Siri, right? You're on your iPhone, you can talk to your phone and just dictate whatever mm. you, whatever you want to know. Like like years ago, that was considered hardcore AI, right? Because that was very was very, it? It was being described as AI. It was. That's a classic AI problem. Interpret interpretation of human speech. Okay. Mm. Uh, something that's very was very very difficult to solve. That's gotten way 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 better uh, in recent years. Um, and now it's just something you have in your phone. Who really thinks about, who really considers that AI, right? Hmm. What user of the iPhone that talks to Siri goes, oh, yeah, that's AI going on. That's just an algorithm, right? So with this next wave of uh, AI uh, focusing on pixel generation, so this is, what problem is it exactly trying to, to solve? So there's um, domain problems that we find solutions for. So um, self-driving cars is one, right? Mm. There's all kinds of problems in self-driving cars, how to interpret sensor information in such a way that you don't kill people mm -hmm. and that you drive safely on the road. Um, I did work on uh, automatic video analysis. Uh, so when you look for certain types of objects in videos for whatever commercial application mm. you might have in mind, there's a lot of healthcare applications, um, you know, imaging techniques that autom where the doctors don't have to identify structures on themselves where classification can be done automatically, where you can say, okay, this is what we see here on the, on, on, <coughs> on the x-ray is probably a tumor, right. or it's probably not a tumor. Um, and all of these are, are examples of small domain-specific problems. All things that humans do right now. <laughs> well, things that right. humans don't do very well. Yeah, may right, maybe. I mean, the radiologist studying some data looking for a tumor... I think I have heard that sometimes the accuracy isn't so great. So maybe there's something better if you have an AI that is able to process those images in a different way. But humans do okay at driving cars. No, they don't. They're horrible drivers. They, uh, the number of deaths per year in car accidents, is, is it's one of the leading causes of death, right? It's, 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 it's horrible. Yeah. Mm. Freedom! No, free. Right. <laughs> That's all I care about, really. <laughs> No, but I mean, like, right, that would solve so much human suffering if you could get, could yeah, get rid yeah. of human drivers. Right, right, right. And think of all the things you could do if you're not driving, right? Yes, that was recently That's what I think about. Apparently, yeah, there were sure. Drink that. and drive. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> Daddy's driving now. <laughs> Apparently, people would drink in cars when they're not driving, and they would party, and they would do all sorts of unspeakable things. 
Unspeakable. That is that a strong a, word, sir. I think there were some polls recently. <laughs> oh, is that right? <laughs> yeah, okay. There will be a lot of lovemaking on the road and a lot of nice. What, 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 what was the survey question? What would you do if you, you didn't yeah, have it? Yeah, something like that. And it was driving, partying, and having sex. <laughs> yeah, but that's that's whether you're in a car or not. That's what people want to do. I think yeah, just, just move it to the car. Yeah, it just makes right. perfect sense. I mean, you're just bored. I always <laughs> had to stop when I was in the car, but now I can just have sex the whole way through. <laughs> I mean, why stop once you get in the car? <laughs> but of course, there are some people that are actually working on, you know, on, 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 on general artificial intelligence. There, mm. the, the, there are research efforts into that direction. Um, but you know, people, yeah, it's something that that scares people because you know because of the way the media treats it. Mm. Because, well, but you can't deny that job destruction is going to be profound, profound. Well, there's always been job destruction but even places that we thought didn't matter i mean like uh, an ai is going to be able to write a better contract than a lawyer any day well it's going to be able to keep the books better than any accountant any day look look at a lawyer for example right so a lawyer what does a lawyer do they write stuff but 80 percent of the time they're looking stuff up on the internet or on whatever software they have right they have their legal uh documents whatever right legal studying their databases right 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 right. that that's most of their work that's time consuming it's it doesn't have a a lot of added value uh it's very expensive to pay for and it's prone to human error right Mm -hmm. it's Mm non-exhaustive so if you could have an automated process that does all of that for you and you can just write it up right and you can just draw the conclusions that would be great i think for everyone involved right um yeah i, I mean yeah so and, you're getting rid of scut work you're getting rid of grunt work yeah you're getting rid of grunt work you're also getting rid of more important things of course um but then again i think that's a much smaller problem than a lot of other problems that are that are plaguing society today that we're not that worried about or that that, that that's less you know, less exciting for the media, right? The disappearance of the middle class that has nothing to do with AI, right? Mm. Maybe a little bit in certain sectors, but but wealth disparity, right? I mean, come on. Yeah. There's a lot of stuff that 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 we could we should get into before worrying about AI, right? Yeah, like immigrants. Mm. <laughs> oh, for Christ's sake. <laughs> I, don't get me started on immigrants. <laughs> I was gonna go for global warming, but that's too much sure, global warming. <laughs> You just want the kid to me to think about the kid flying four meters, isn't that it? <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but um, yeah, that was incredibly illuminating because um, it kind of shows my ignorance that I have this my my sort of view of AI is this uh, picture portrayed by I guess the media, whereby it's like robots and human humanoid figures running around doing doing all sorts of things that humans do, whereas as you've described, it's more of functions can you say that yeah i guess yeah solving problems that need solving yeah that are difficult to do without these techniques yeah and you know i and and i think bill's um concern merits uh you know merits some some discussion and and it is really concerning that if if this ai wave comes that can replace a lot of the things that that humans currently do then there will be a lot of disruption and a lot of uh, distress within society and definitely when you know you could definitely link that to maybe problems of inequality or wealth disparity as well, because all the gains that comes from from AI, most of it will go to the 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 businesses, right? And the the um, well, the businesses and the consumers, uh, if they can get if they can obtain products at a cheaper price. But you know, 
I'm an I'm an auditor myself, and a lot of the work I do is. Oh, you're done. Grunt work. <laughs> yeah, so... so It's a good thing you turned to podcasting. <laughs> on, on the, on the, the one hand. Yeah. yeah. And you'll be a trailing spouse. <laughs> you nailed it. <laughs> on, on, on the one hand, I've been very wary of this concern. Because even with stuff like blockchain, right? I've always wondered, you know, if we had, if we had a blockchain that could, that could you know, uh, make up an accounting system that could, that could tie up all the figures nicely, we didn't have to do any recalculations or whatever... I, I wouldn't have a job. And to some degree, you know, I kind of hate my job. So <laughs> I'm, I'm happy with that. Please, take yeah. my job. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so so on one hand, I'm happy with that. But I do understand that sort of disruption that comes with that. And and yeah, it is a very pressing concern. Well, well you know, if I, were to, if I were to spin out a positive story mm. on this, we'll eventually develop technologies that produce all the stuff necessary to satisfy our needs, but without our having to do crappy jobs that we don't enjoy mm. to have the technologies make the stuff we need. And you know what that sounds like? That sounds like the communist manifesto, Marx's vision of you can be a poet in the morning and a fisherman in the afternoon, and you can be whatever you want to be. Your life it's true freedom. You will not be constrained anymore mm. because all of your food, energy, all the stuff of life will be created by AIs manufacturing and maintaining themselves and creating all of these basic commodities and handling all the legal work and all the financial work, and you'll just be left to be free. But that's just so, I mean, that's just so completely far off and just so... Dude, I was helping you out. <laughs> no, but I mean, like, it's. Uh, I You're think just blowing uh, it up. I think to a certain extent, it's. It's. I mean, although very enjoyable, right? These kinds of discussions about the end of of work, the end of society as we know it. <laughs> it is. It's fine. And being liberated by our robot overlords. <laughs> yes. Uh, or the more dystopian version of that. Mm -hmm. Although enjoyable, I think it. Um, it creates not only false expectations. Um, with people, but it, I, I think it also numbs people to uh, the whole subject of AI, right? I mean, it's just the technology, right, that, that, we, that we can use to make great strides in solving certain types of problems. Mm. Um, it, it, it's, I, I don't see any realistic path to all these doomsday scenarios that even very intelligent, very knowledgeable people keep talking about it. Elon Musk you on the Joe Rogan You podcast. lack imagination, I like, sir. You I, lack imagination. I, I, I tried to warn him. Nobody would listen. <laughs> oh, yeah, that's right. Right? Yeah. Uh, so these are, these are very... He said very... he was testifying to Congress, trying to convince them to kill AI in the crib. Right. Because it was going to destroy humanity. They are saying, this is Elon yeah, but Musk it's was saying this. Curing cancer. Maybe we should cure cancer. Mm. Maybe that's a good thing. So right. you're, Maybe we should. You're always a glass half full person but you know what i mean there's so much there's so much stuff just regular problems very important problems that are that are that, that are that we cannot solve today because they're they involve you know processing huge amounts of data right they're computationally uh, impossible for humans to right? do and sure right. okay certain jobs might disappear 
but maybe that's not always a bad thing. That, that's, that's the first thing I would, I, I would like to point out, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's fewer people work, working in coal mines today than there were before. Yep. Not necessarily a bad thing. Yep. I think all of those people with truck driving jobs that are basically morbidly obese, have diabetes, yep. um, have nowhere to go in their lives, uh, earn minimum wage or a little bit over, uh, Come on, maybe they won't mind, right? Or maybe the next generation won't the mind. The streets used to be filled with horse manure. Yeah, exactly. And, it was and horrific. And, <laughs> and, and I think the biggest problem in, in all of this, I was talking uh, to a good friend of mine this morning uh, about this in, in a slightly different context, was that the future is impossible to predict. People mm. always systematically fail in predicting the future. Look, for example, at the movie Alien. One of my very favorite movies. I don't mm-hmm. know if you've seen that movie. But basically, humans <laughs> but, get in a spaceship. They go very yeah, far aliens. into space. Right? The, yeah, they, alien. They find an alien. that Popping out of the one. stomach. Alien. Right. <laughs> right, right. I yeah. love that part. <laughs> <laughs> and, but if you look at the inside of the spaceship, it's CRT TVs and millions of buttons everywhere with no it, labels yeah. that they right. magically know how to, how to press. Right? right. Because that's what they came up with when they thought about what the future would look like. Because you take what exists today and you try to push it into something that will exist tomorrow and you're always off the mark. Mm. You never identify the yeah, really important a Hollywood set designer compared to someone who has deep knowledge of the, uh, the possibilities of AI. Well, actually, I just think people are always wrong. Imagining the future is... Well, I'm is glad we're recording this. Attractable. <laughs> it, it's, 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 it's unbelievably difficult, right? Look what happened yeah, with yeah, the invention. Yeah, for sure. Look what right. happened with the invention of the iPhone, right? Did anyone ever, like 15 years ago, if I told someone, okay, my day job is I'm an app developer? Yeah, right. That didn't even mean anything. What's an app? Right. Right? What are you talking about? Right. Phones? What are you talking about? Right? Yeah. There, there's enormous ecosystems. There's whole economies. That that, that 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 were created from nothing because of the iPhone. Yeah, so I just got to do a quick check. So income inequality, you labeled it as a problem. Right. So if you have technologies that create enormous income inequalities by throwing huge swaths of people out work out of work who have zero hope because they are human being meat bag wetware blobs, they have no opportunity to retrain and be an app developer or whatever the future version of app developer is. What do you do with the unemployable masses? I'm not sure where these unemployable masses are. <laughs> I'm not sure what what jobs we're talking about. Actually. Well, Actually, can I just respond to that? Because I think um, that's a bit of a misnomer because when you say that technology is going to create all this massive inequality and put people out of jobs, I think you also have to account for the fact that new technologies are going to increase accessibility to people as in the fact that we are going to get more access to tools, to different opportunities, to different ways of doing things that we've never thought of doing before. Uh, Just as he said, we can't predict the future. Back then, maybe, you know, if you were thinking of going to audio or, or make, doing audio for a living, um, what you could have done, you could only go to radio. But these days, people can become podcasters and they can make money. So that's just one example of... Money? <laughs> what? Well, in the States. We're, complete, we're completely screwing this up. <laughs> well, I, I, mean, I mean, yeah. So Wait, he said spend money. Spend money. Oh, okay. <laughs> yeah. okay. So it's not just the one-sided 
I, I think that's not a fair narrative to just say that it's just going to be destruction, destruction, destruction. Because well, so okay, know. so these are my Midwestern roots showing, right? <laughs> Where uh, Rust Belt roots, right? Yeah. Where uh, you had fifty, fifty-five year old. Uh, maybe they had a high school education, maybe mm. they didn't, uh, thrown out of work by automation. And I totally get what you were saying earlier. I have never worked on a factory floor. Mm. I, would, I would hate that to work on a factory floor. I think that would be boring and dirty and uninteresting, but I've never, never done it. But these people, they get thrown out of work. They're 55. They have roughly, their bodies are pretty broken from having worked in that factory the whole time. In the next 10 years, what are you going to expect them to do? Uh, what are they going to do? They're not, I mean, maybe they'll become podcasters, <laughs> but maybe they never had to use a computer before. Mm. Now, obviously, my examples are coming from 20, 30 years ago, but I think you can project forward that, you know, well, I don't know how to use that AI terminal, whatever that thing yeah. is, right? Uh, you know, and I, I never learned how to use that, and the kids are going, well, gosh, just learn it. It's like, well, I don't even know how to use that. Right? I'm I, I'm sympathetic to. to so there's a generational else. shift. Mm. That's what I'm focusing right. on. Absolutely, yeah. is that every single technological evolution, there is a lost generation, I roughly agree. speaking, and those are the people that I'm always concerned about because I probably grew up around it. <laughs> I grew up around lost generations of people. Yeah, I think that's a fair point. Uh, not everyone will be able to pick up a phone or a computer, especially when they're 60 or 70 years old and they get laid off. So they're going to be the ones sort of caught in this uh, transition. Right. Yeah. yeah. And it's pretty cold to just say either, well, get retrained, mm -hmm. you idiot, uh, or die. <laughs> or live in poverty, you know. Mm. And again, I'm coming at it from an American perspective where we don't have systems in place to help these people. Well, there you go. That's what I was going to bring up next. Yeah. 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 It depends where you're at. Yeah. Right. Right. Yeah. This is a pretty interesting tension and dilemma that I didn't think I'd be bringing up on this Me podcast. <laughs> yeah. I think sort of on the really? one end is um, Nikolai you trying to argue talk that... about something lighter. Nice, <laughs> nice podcast choice, dude. <laughs> I should have gone for the poo one. Because <laughs> <laughs> I had another show yeah, that was mostly, right, right. mostly talk about poo. Can we <laughs> move on to poo, please? So for, for the record, right, when I asked Nikolai to come on, so I was texting him on Messenger, right, and said, you know, you could you could bring up an, a recommendation. Within seconds, he says, "Oh, I got one. Your mom, your mama's house. Your mom's house. Your mom's house. Oh, you have talked about yeah, that. No, no, yeah, no, no. I'll mention it. Your mom's house. Your mom's house by Tom Segura and his wife uh, Christina Psiski, which yeah. is one of the best podcasts out there. You should all listen to it. It's amazing. <laughs> it's amazing. Two stand-up comedians married to each other, and they just sit there and they talk about the craziest things. The craziest things." And there's a lot of poo. <laughs> <laughs> well, everybody's got some. But yeah, the contrast is universal. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I, I have two very opposing sides. In my life. <laughs> <laughs> he lives that schizophrenia. Yeah, right. He lives it. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, don't mean to dwell. That's more for the poo side of the things. Right? <laughs> well, we get serious sometimes. We do. Yeah, we do. Yeah, yeah. We bounce yeah. back and forth. Definitely. Yeah. Right. right. <laughs> All right, so uh, I think that that about does it for today's show. And with uh, that brings the end to today's episode. Thank you so much, Bill and Nikolai, for coming on. 
Thank you for having us. Yeah, Danny, this has been great. We really appreciate it and uh, appreciate your time and coming on. Yeah. And uh, so for people who are interested in getting in touch with you or learning more about your podcast, where can they do so? Well, they can find our podcast uh, anywhere they might listen to podcasts. So iTunes, uh, Spotify, uh, or Google Play if they're in the U.S. Our podcast is called We Don't Mean to Dwell. But uh, you can also find us on our website, mm-hmm. uh, dwell.com. And if you ever want to get in touch, you can reach out at hello at dontmeantodwell.com. Mm. Yeah. All right. So if you like this episode, please do a big favor by sharing it amongst your friends or by subscribing to the Economic Arise podcast on iTunes, SoundCloud, or Spotify. All the links and details to the shows discussed in this episode will be available in the show notes on the website www.economicalrisepodcast.com. And if you have any questions, suggestions, or feedback for the show, you can drop a message on the social media links below. Once again, this has been your host, Danny, special guest Bill and Nikolai at the Podcast Spotlight, the show by podcast fans for podcast fans. <laughs>